One of the biggest myths about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that it's been going on for centuries, all about ancient religious hatreds. In fact, while religion is involved, conflict's mostly about two groups of people who claim the same land, and it really only goes back about a century to the early 1900s. Around then, the region along the eastern Mediterranean we now call Israel-Palestine, been under Ottoman rule for centuries, was religiously diverse, including mostly Muslims and Christians, also a small number of Jews who lived generally in peace. It was changing in two important ways. First, more people in the region were developing a sense of being not just ethnic Arabs, but Palestinians, a distinct national identity. At the same time, not so far away in Europe, more Jews were joining a movement called Zionism, which said that Judaism was not just a religion, but a nationality, one that deserved a nation of its own. And after centuries of persecution, many believed a Jewish state was their only way of safety and saw their historic homeland in the Middle East as their best hope for establishing it. In the first decades of the 20th century, tens of thousands of European Jews moved there. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. British and French empires carved up the Middle East, the British taking control of a region it called the British Mandate for Palestine. At first, the British allowed Jewish immigration. But as more Jews arrived, settling into farming communities, tension between Jews and Arabs grew. Both sides committed acts of violence, and by the 1930s, the British began limiting Jewish immigration. In response, Jewish militias formed to fight both the local Arabs and to resist British rule. Then came the Holocaust, leading many more Jews to flee Europe for British Palestine and galvanizing much of the world in support of a Jewish state. In 1947, as sectarian violence between Jews and Arabs there grew, the United Nations approved a plan to divide British Palestine into two separate states. One for Jews, Israel, and one for Arabs, Palestine. The city of Jerusalem, where Jews, Muslims, and Christians all have holy sites, was to become a special international zone. The plan was meant to give Jews a state, to establish Palestinian independence, and to end the sectarian violence that the British could no longer control. The Jews accepted the plan and they declared independence as Israel. But Arabs throughout the region saw the UN plan as just more European colonialism trying to steal their land. Many of the Arab states, who had just recently won independence themselves, declared war on Israel in an effort to establish a unified Arab Palestine where all of British Palestine had been. The new state of Israel won the war. But in the process, they pushed well past their borders under the UN plan, taking the western half of Jerusalem and much of the land that was to have been part of Palestine. They also expelled huge numbers of Palestinians from their homes, creating a massive refugee population whose descendants today number about 7 million. At the end of the war, Israel controlled all of the territory except for Gaza, which Egypt controlled, and the West Bank, named because it's west of the Jordan River, which Jordan controlled. This was the beginning of the decades-long Arab-Israeli conflict. During this period, many Jews in Arab-majority countries fled or were expelled, arriving in Israel. Then something happened that transformed the conflict. In 1967, Israel and the neighboring Arab states fought another war. When it ended, Israel had seized the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank from Jordan, and both Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. Israel was now occupying the Palestinian territories, including all of Jerusalem and its holy sites. This left Israel responsible for governing the Palestinians, a people it had fought for decades. In 1978, 
Israel and Egypt signed the US-brokered Camp David Accords. Shortly after that, Israel gave Sinai back to Egypt as part of the peace treaty. At the time, this was hugely controversial in the Arab world. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was assassinated in part because of outrage against it. But it marked the beginning of the end of the wider Arab-Israeli conflict. Over the next few decades, the other Arab states gradually made peace with Israel, even if they never signed formal peace treaties. But Israel's military was still occupying the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza, and this is when the conflict became an Israeli-Palestinian struggle. Y'all, we going in this week. This is Profane Faith. Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Okay, wow. Um, <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Coronavirus. Okay, wow. So, the world has completely changed in a week. And, uh, wow, some of us, uh, you know, looking at uh, some of these things on uh, <laughs> The Walking Dead and um, how it all ends and a lot of these catastrophe movies, right? Um, I'm like, well, what's going on here? And who knew? Toilet paper, <laughs> right? Toilet paper. My gosh. Um, do you got some? <laughs> Your boy ran out and I went to like almost 16 different stores and, uh, you know, finally started just calling folks and everybody's out, even on Amazon, 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 y'all. Oh my gosh. Then I saw the industrial um, kind. I went on Amazon, found an industrial. It was like, I don't know, 90 rolls or something like that, you know, for like $95. So I was like, all right, maybe I'll get that. So by the time it took for me to call my wife and to ask her, just like, hey, is this in the budget? And to get back, I actually put it in my cart and get back. It was already gone. Just just like that. Just gone. Um, who knew? And I feel prepared, decently prepared, right? Like water, canned goods. You know, we got backup generator stuff and plenty of batteries, flashlights that, you know, don't use batteries that, you, you know, you wind up and stuff and all that stuff. Right. Toilet paper, <laughs> toilet paper. Wow. Well, wherever you at, um, I hope you're safe. I hope you are all right. This is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Welcome, uh, Dan Daniel White Hodge. I'm the host. Um, but yeah, the world is uh, the world is a little crazy right now, and um, it's difficult to say without any without any level of um, 
you know, knowledge of, you know, what uh, what it's what it's going to be like uh, here in Illinois. The governor yesterday uh, made a mandate to close all all schools, public and private. Um, my school that I teach at, they, um, you know, switched to online courses. And uh, it'll be interesting just to kind of see what, you know, what what is going down and what what is happening in regards to, you know, just kind of because every day. Right. It's like the numbers keep going up. It's not getting better. Uh, at least here in the United States. Now I know places in China they're starting they they're starting to get it under control. In fact, I saw a video the other day about you know where it actually started. I'm forgetting the name of the place in China. Um, that uh, you know they have you know that their numbers are starting to go down now uh, because of, you know just how hard they worked and whatnot. But you know here we're just it's just it's just starting to hit us. So. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I know I had students asking, you know, it's like, oh man, I went through school four or five years, you know, am I got to get my diploma just in the mail, no walking. So yeah, it's, um, some crazy stuff, right? It, initially, right. The, uh, the, what is it? March Madness was going to do their stuff, uh, you know, just with just the games without the crowd. Now they canceled it all. Um, you know, you got the NBA delaying stuff. So we're in a unique space right now um i've always had most of my material well i have all of my material online for all of my classes and um so it's it for me it's not been a a it's, it's not a problem in fact i'm just trying to figure out which how do i want to do this like you know if people because if people are holding live classes and there's like 30 classes all holding live classes with everybody logging in you know, that's a tax on the server. So I'm trying to figure out, like, am I just going to record lectures and whatnot? But I, again, this is stuff that I've been doing for years already um, in all of my classes. Um, so it's really not a foreign thing. Now, granted, some of my colleagues like in music and nursing and education, people who were, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, courses that are a little bit more hands on or a little bit more, you know, it's it's difficult, right, to 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 teach, quote unquote, um, stuff like that, you know, just primarily over lines on or online, excuse me. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, some, some of those areas, uh, cope. And it'll be interesting just to see, particularly in my school where we have a lot of folk who are just resistant to technology, right? They're just resistant to, uh, updates and upgrades and, and, and to see, you know, what happens with them. Um, cause I, I imagine some of them are probably freaking out about now, um, you know, trying to figure out like what's right. Like, cause I got folks at, at the school that still like everything printed out at meetings and, you know, they don't necessarily know what the one drive is. And it's, I'm just always just like, wow. Um, it's just not the world I operate in. And, and I, and part of it is, is that I thank my own undergraduate education cause, um, you know, they were very forward thinking and I graduated in 2000 with my BA social behavioral science from Cal State Monterey Bay. And it was a newer university. The university opened uh, right when Fort Ord had closed. It was right there in the central coast of California. And they uh, were a new university. I was the third graduating class from that school. Um, and those professors were just like, look, the future is technology. The future is. And so all of us were required to take, I think it was like 12 units in uh, computer science. And so... Uh, we were all drilled down like this is this is what you need to learn. And, you know, I've just kind of continued that application throughout my educational career. Right. Um, and so it was just again, it, and, and, you know, now we're we're kind of all forced, at least in, in education, I mean, almost every school, every, you know, uh, colleague I talk with, their schools are 
uh, are canceled at least through like we're canceled, you know, at least through mid April. Uh, then I'm sure they'll reassess. Um, but some folks are saying that the peak won't even come till May or June. So we'll see. I hope you're safe wherever you're at. I hope you're safe. I hope you're with loved ones. I hope you're not stuck in too many different crazy places. Um, you know, I'm thankful this season. I haven't been traveling a lot. You know, you boy don't get invited back to places anymore. Uh, and so uh, that's kind of worked out in this season because I haven't, you know, and this is where I feel for a lot of my friends who are depending on those conferences, are depending on those speaking engagements because that's how they make money. That's their livelihood. And now those things is canceled. Those things are, 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 are not happening. And that's a major hit. So if y'all can keep some of them in mind, check in on some folks, uh, a lot of folks that we've had on this show, that's how they make their, that's how they make their income. That's how they make their money. And, um, my heart goes out. We are, you know, uh, personally, we, us, my wife and I were, you know, helping put some money in people's pockets, uh, as right now, even as we speak. And so I'm, I'm thankful that we have the money to do that. Um, you know, we're both salaried. And so, uh, we're just in a different position, right? Cause it's like, okay, go online. Well, I'm still going to get, keep getting paid. Um, so yeah, it's crazy. Like I said, I want to do a special episode on prepping. I didn't mean to take seven minutes just talking about that, but this is a big thing. This is a, this is a major, major event happening in our lives. And, uh, it's taking up a lot of oxygen in a lot of different areas, especially now that we're to the point, you know, where the the complete idiot in the office, White House office, is finally right saying that we have an emergency. Um, it, yeah, I am. I, yeah, it's just it's sickening to think how long it's taken just to get to the point where we can now, you know, even declare this thing an emergency. Yeah, here we are. Here we are, face to face, a couple of silver spoons, and. and uh, we're uh, we're dealing with it, you know. Um, again, I'm thankful for y'all if you're listening to this. Uh, this is a real special episode. Hopefully, you had a chance to listen last week to Bobby G uh, and his story and uh, coming around. And I know we didn't get a chance to talk too much about the MC, but I did put links uh, in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com as always, so you can check out his music. Uh, and that has set us up for this week, getting into the whole Israel-Palestinian debate, the third rail, major third rail. Uh, issue, and I wanted to have some conversations with some gentlemen um, in regards to this, uh, folks who have been around a little bit longer than I and out there doing the work. Um, I figured, let's bring them on. And, you know, to say up front, and we actually named this in the, the conversation, uh, these are all men, um, cis males, talking about this particular issue, and I'm hoping to get some women on here as well to talk about this issue, so that I just want to name that. Up front, and we also name it when in the uh, you know when we're when we're conversating as well. Um, so a couple of caveats with this conversation because I get it. This um, you know I've heard of people's jobs being lost, people's lives being threatened um, over this particular subject, and I want again I wanted to have the conversation, but I wanted to have it with people who have lived it and have engaged with it, and uh, you know who are who are out there and. And that that's exactly what's going on here. So the first thing I would say is come into this conversation with an open mind. I think that's that's big. Uh, secondly, I think, you know, as you're listening to this, maybe this is going to strike a nerve and you'll be like, oh, I can't believe that. You know, um, I hear you. And usually when I when I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. You know, usually not all the time, but usually I try to ask myself, what are the issues? What is making me upset here? 
what have I been told about this particular subject and 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 what are some of the myths and fallacies and, and whatnot? Um Thirdly, I mean, this is a perspective, right? And uh, this is, you know, one among many, uh, as you heard at the beginning of the podcast, right? A couple of different perspectives on this this whole thing. Uh, and it's one that I think personally, as the host of this podcast, as somebody who, you know, has created Profane Faith, something that needed to be talked about long ago. I'm sad that we had to wait till season four uh, to get to it, Um so I'm hoping that you can take in the information and let it sit with you um, as we all kind of wrestle with these things. I'll say at the beginning, um, and, and I'm not going to quote him directly, but James Baldwin, I think, said it the best. It's like, you know, we can agree to disagree, you know, unless your disagreeance is in complete, you know, in, in line with my own uh, demise or my own, you know, canceling of my voice. You know what I'm saying? It's, I mean, that kind of sums it up for me. I mean, I'm just like there's a level of agreeing to disagree. And then there's a just level like, no, things just need to be put right. Uh, we need to work towards equity. We need to work towards justice and what those things look like. And so I'm hoping we can continue on in that path, but I also get it. These are third rail issues and some people have just made up their minds. So with that said, I wanted to enter into these conversations um, and, you know, begin to, to, uh, to conversate and have those uh, as well. So hopefully I won't get too many hate emails. And I, and I'm, and honestly, I don't, I don't really get any hate emails and most of the crap that is, that used to come my way, uh, I've blocked and deleted and whatnot. And so, and I don't feed trolls. I don't know. Some of y'all be getting into all kind of arguments and crazy stuff online. I'm, that's not me. I, I don't do that. Like I'll, I'll talk with you face to face. We'll have a face to face conversation, but all that online stuff, I it's just energy wasted. I'm getting too old, and my blood pressure's already on the brink. Uh -uh, I ain't got time for that mess. Um, so I got three folks here, um, and uh, I want to introduce them real quick. Uh, so we got Dr. Torian Webb, a friend of mine, and I knew he was involved in this conversation, and I wanted to have him on as well. And he actually kind of got roped in uh, through the other person, uh, Rabbi Brandt, which I'll introduce here in a second. And so when I was like, oh, Torian, that's right, that's right. And so he got in, and, you know, he has got some great insight. And so he is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Morehouse College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy and religion. He holds Master of Arts degrees, plural, in black and cultural studies from Columbia University and Northwestern University. He's, uh, well, you know what, this, this thing says he's uh, currently in the doctor of philosophy program at Garrett Evangelical. I thought he already had his doctor. He's soon to be doctor. He's close enough. He doctor. And uh, his research looks at blackness and Palestinianness as racial formations and the ways in which an internationalist theological hermeneutic of visual material culture can uncover how these communities organically move against white supremacy and Judeo-Christian hegemony. Woo, doggies. His work is supported by the Forum for Theological or Exploration, excuse me. Uh, previously, uh, uh, Brother Torian served as scholar in residence at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, which if you haven't been, I highly recommend it, uh, where he produced writings, researched, and managed the organization's Palestinian justice portfolio. Uh, and he has also formerly served as the director of staff and academics at the W.E. Du Bois Scholars Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. So, Brother Torian comes with all kind of good stuff right there. Ooh, yes. Um, next, we got uh, Tarek Abuta. Abuta. Uh, and I'm probably sure I'm saying that wrong, and I apologize. Uh, but Tarek is, uh, he is growing up, born, he was, grew up in Bethlehem, Palestine. Tarek moved with his family to Texas during the first 
Infidon, uh, when he was 12, after graduating from the University of Texas Law School, Tariq started his career working for the negotiation support unit in Ramallah, researching legal and policy issues. Since he has worked in Hebron for nine years as the coordinator of the Christian Peacemaker team in Hebron uh, and served as the representative of Reverend Bernard Lafayette, protege of Dr. Martin Luther King, for five years training Palestinian youth in grassroots organizing and activism. Currently, Tarek serves as the executive director of Friends Sabil North America. And, uh, of course, all these links will be put in the show notes. As always, whitehodgepodcast.com. Lastly, we have Rabbi Brant Rosen. He is the founder of the justice-based Jewish organization uh, here in Chicago. It's uh, T-Z-E-D-E-K. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I'm sure I've butchered enough, but T-Z-E-D-E-K. I'm sure somebody right now is saying, Dan, it's, it's, it's said this way. I apologize. I just don't want to do injustice to the name. He previously served as the Midwest Regional Director of the American Friends Service Committee and Rabbi of Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation in Evanston, Illinois. Rabbi Rosen is the co-founder of the Jew- Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council and the author of the book, Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. Woo, these three cats was breaking it down. I initially didn't mean to take this much time, but with the whole outbreak of the virus, um, here we are. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation. I'll be definitely interested to hear what y'all think. Um, And uh, this is a long, it's a conversation long time in coming and uh, something that I've wanted to do here on Profane Faith for a long time. So again, hope you're safe, hope you're well, and uh, blessings on you and uh, hope you can find some toilet paper. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go, go find some toilet paper. If you do, let your boy know, because I'm still on the lookout. I'm about to be down to towels and wet wipes. <laughs> At any rate, y'all, here's the conversation. Check it. All right. Well, welcome to Profane Faith, y'all. This is uh, Dan Whitehodge, your host, and I am joined by three gentlemen today uh, who we're going to be, you know, engaging in a subject is uh, Brant and I spoke. uh, This is a what do you call it? A third rail uh, issue. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. That's one way of putting it. I often use that metaphor. Yes, I like that. (laughs) I like that a lot. I feel that that's. That's been my motif at the school that I'm currently at. I feel like I'm the third rail itself. So this is far for the course. Um, so, gentlemen, thank you. Um, uh, we have Brant, we have Tarek, and we have Torian. Uh, Torian, I've known. Tarek, I just met. Brant, I met through a friend. Uh, but y'all have some great backgrounds, and I'd love to just get some background on each of us before we dive into the conversation, the deeper conversation. Tarek, can we start with you, sir? Just a little bit about who you are, what you've been up to, maybe from birth to now, and, you know, how you came to this conversation. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Daniel. Um, for me, raised in Bethlehem, Palestine, um, for 12 years, my family escaped um, Israel's occupation when I was 12 um, and came to Houston, Texas. Since I, um, when I was 24, I graduated from law school and did some legal research, believing that law is the answer to our people's problem to discover after a year that it will never be the solution. And mm. I did the last. Um, 20 years um, of my life since to grassroots organizing, um, first by 
um, supporting and learning on how to do justice work on the ground with uh, college students. Then I did 10 years of service with the Christian peacemaker teams in Hebron, microcosm of occupation. Um, and then I took on this position as um, executive director of Friends of Seville North America that uses my skills and my life experience to educate and move the moderate churches to action um, as to uh, not continue their complicity in, in Israel's crimes and occupations. Mm. Mm, all right. Wow. Okay. I want to ask more on that, but that's good. That's good. Uh, this is good. Uh, all right. Brother Torian, uh, what, what about you, brother? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it's good to be here with you all, uh, Dan. It's always good to to talk and, and catch up a little bit. Um, so I I came to to this issue um, in, in 2012, 2013, uh, as a matter of fact, and it's a bit of an unconventional past. So I'm uh, trained as a, as a race studies scholar um, and, and a theologian. And what, what I often say, um, you know, for, for folks who, who are like, oh, what is what is race studies? You know, what, what does it do? What do you all look at? And you just talk about black people, you know, I mean, kind of, right? You know, we, we know we know the history and the literature be, because we have to know it. Uh, but, but really what we're trained to do is kind of look at um, uh, processes, right? Look at how processes of, of race making happen um, across contexts, right? And, and up to that point, my context was uh, really just uh, the, the U.S.-based uh, race relations, but when you when you know the the scaffolding of a thing, you know you can uh, uh, you can see the ways in which it's operative or not, right? In, in other uh, in, in other contexts, right? So that's always something that, that was kind of fascinating to me. But the the moment for me, um, a mentor of mine put me on uh, the the at the time the most recent book of poetry of one of the great poets of our tradition. Uh, Alice Walker. She has a couple pieces in in a cushion in the road that um, are rather critical of of the Israeli occupation and the, the critical reception that the Walker was getting. You know, it was just a it was tons of blowback. Um, mm. you know, folks, you know, were, were calling her, you know, everything from anti-Semitic to um, uh, un-American, racist, and and at that point, I didn't know much about. Uh, uh, Israel Palestine, um, but but what I what I did know is you know folk were saying that about black folk in in you know the the heart of McCarthyism. Right, Baldwin teaches us that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so it fascinated me with the uh, with the question of Palestine. I wanted to learn more about it. So that that's kind of like my my intellectual baptism, uh, as it were. And about a year later is when I went to the region for the first time and, and just had so many transformative experiences um, with uh, brown folk living under uh, an illegal military occupation. Um, and, and that and that moment for me was the, um, I identify it as the spiritual baptism uh, the, the kind of went along with the intellectual one. And, and ever since then, I, I've been dedicating a, a great deal of my uh, activism and, and research work to uh, particularly black Palestinian transnational solidarity um, and, and trying, trying to wrestle with what it means to be a Christian theologian uh, kind of in that 
uh, a, a black liberationist, right? Um, abolitionist theologian kind of w- within that um, moment. Okay. Okay. Wow, man. Again, this is, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. I got you, you just need to have each of y'all just on individually, man, just to talk about life and, and in general. Um, and last, but certainly not least, brother Brandt, um, uh, what, what about you? How, how are you associated and connected here and what's been going on for you? Sure. Um, and again, thank you also, Daniel, and uh, for having us on. And it's it's uh, always a pleasure to be with Tarek and, and Torian as well. Um, so I come to this uh, because Israel-Palestine uh, has always been part of my life as a Jew. Um, I Growing up, um, I was always taught that Israel was a central part of my Jewish identity and my Judaism. Uh, I have family in Israel uh, uh, and first visited there when I was very young. Um, I identified with Israel, I think, as I was taught as this narrative of this remarkable national rebirth that emerged out of the ashes of the Holocaust. It's a very powerful and uh, um, central narrative uh, in contemporary Jewish life. Uh, And I really, I was raised to understand that in a sense, Zionism, Jewish political nationalism was uh, the national liberation movement of the Jewish people after centuries of exile following the Holocaust. So um, I also come from a family that's quite progressive. And, um, you know, I I, I would say identified on the leftist edge of the Zionist world. I uh, lived in Israel for a few years and lived on the kibbutz for much of those, much of that time and thought seriously this is my early 20s about actually moving to Israel to, to live on a kibbutz. Labor Zionism was a, an important part of my identity at the time. I decided not to do that um, and came back to the United States and uh, decided to enroll in rabbinical school after I finished my undergraduate work. And so I um, spent five years at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia and became a congregational rabbi. But Israel-Palestine was always an important part of my identity. And I I would say, as I, as I said before, identifying with the, the progressive edge of that. So that means specifically that uh, as a progressive or liberal Zionist, so-called, I advocated for peace with Palestinians. I advocated for a two-state solution um, back in the early 80s, advocating for talking with the PLO was considered, it's hard to imagine now, but it was considered a pretty edgy thing to do. Um, I would I would say, and so I became a congregational rabbi, but um, became an advocacy for the peace process uh, was as a big part of my rab, important part of my rabbinate. Uh, I would also say that during this time, I entertained uh, an internal debate in my own mind uh, about Zionism in general. Uh, and it was a, tr- I, I was troubled. I was always troubled with this notion of a, a Jewish political state in historic Palestine for all kinds of reasons. But I, I, um, I never was able to quite square this this debate, and it was certainly not one I would have um, openly as as a congregational rabbi. But I had trouble. I had trouble with the notion of um, uh, a Jewish state being created on the backs of the indigenous people, the Palestinians who uh, who actually lived in that land, and in 1948, uh, a state that was actually created uh, by uh, displacing 700, 750,000 
uh, plus Palestinians from their homes and not allowing them to to return and creating a huge uh, refugee crisis that exists to this day, today the largest refugee crisis in the world. Um, I entertained issues uh, in my own mind about this concept of a, of a, a a Jewish demographic state, that the, the Jewish identity of this state is predicated on a majority of Jews living in the land. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, every once in a while I would think to myself, wow, this ethnic nationalism, you know, as a progressive person uh, predicating the identity of a nation on the, the identity of one particular people, particularly in a land that is, has historically been multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, but subjugating that identity to one particular person, well, that's enormously problematic. And even as a liberal Zionist, I would advocate for the two-state solution by saying things like, and these are talking points that you hear even today, um, that there's a demographic threat to the Jewish state, mm. that the the mm. Palestinian birth rate is such that um, if we don't have a two-state solution, uh, the Jewish character of the state will be endangered. And every once in a while, I'd hear myself advocating in that way and think to myself, demographic threat, you know, like what's, I would never use a term like that as an American. You know, that's, that's just, let's face it. That's a racist idea of looking at other people as the demographic threat to your identity. And yet Mm. as a liberal, so-called, I could use that term um, freely and openly. And you hear it today. You hear so-called liberal Zionists talking about, you know, the importance of, of uh, the peace process because of an er- the, the Palestinian birth rate. Yeah. And then I would also entertain issues about just the over the, the incredibly heavily militarized nature, nature of Israeli society and, and, and the Israeli nation. And um, as a progressive, as an anti-war activist, as someone who had no trouble advocating against uh, the arms race and against uh, militarism as an American and um, uh, American militarism at home and abroad, I would always give Israel a pass. And that's something that's very common in the, the liberal Jewish community that um, we're progressive and anti-militarist except when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Hmm. So these were some of the debates I had in my head that I never really was openly um, uh, openly talking about until I until it became impossible for me not to. And basically, um, I think that the, the breaking point was the uh, Israel's military onslaught in Gaza in 2008, which was I just couldn't remain silent anymore. And that was really when I made the shift from being a, a liberal Zionist to being a Palestine solidarity activist. And um, you mentioned the, you know, my, my use of the term third rail. I stepped very publicly and openly on that third rail by saying that Israel is committing war crimes, that we are, um, that Israel is a colonial, settler colonial enterprise that um, has been, was based on an, and birthed on an injustice to a people. And that injustice continues to this day. And um, that sent me on a whole new uh, path. Um, I ended up having to leave my congregation. Uh, I became more involved in the organization Jewish Voice for Peace and helped found their uh, rabbinical uh, council. We have about 50 rabbis now on the JVP rabbinical council. I worked for American Friends Service for five years. I founded uh, a non-Zionist congregation called Sedek Chicago, and um, which grew to the point that just recently I left AFSC to become a full-time rabbi of Tzedek Chicago, um, which is a congregation founded on uh, core values that um, 
stand with the oppressed, including Palestinians. Let me make that very clear. Wow. Wow. So that man, so y'all come from some very rich backgrounds. I mean, I'm, I'm loving this. And so, well, and just even for somebody who's just maybe just tuning in and listening and whatnot, I don't know how it can be done, but so I got two big questions. So what are the historical aspects of all this? Like what, what has made this into such a conflict for somebody who's maybe just like, man, like what I hear it. I I just don't know all the issues. And then ultimately, you know, y'all have mentioned like, you know, uh, arms and, you know, and in terms of uh, uh, um, peace movements and nonviolence and whatnot. How does that play out in, in the, in the day to day? Where does, where does that stand as, I guess I'm trying to itch at, and this is maybe just a broader question for a little later on. And I, I know I'm asking two very loaded questions, but uh, y'all are y'all are esteemed and well, and well educated on all of this. How does that play out then, just in terms of quote unquote self defense, uh, and how that looks like on on you know on the ground? And I know this has been an ongoing conversation, you know, of oppressed peoples right around the world and 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 whatnot. But yeah, those those are the two that I kind of just want to throw out there, and you know, anyone want to kick it off? Um, I, yeah, hope those make sense. Sure. And Daniel, so your question is the historical aspects of it and then how to resist it on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Good way. That's good. I like that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first image that comes into my mind is my grandmother who since died five years ago, um, leaving her house in Haifa, which is what became Israel and walking in what became um, Trail of Tears for Palestinians, mm. walking away to Jordan, leaving their house and belongings behind, um, along with five daughters at the time and my grandfather. Um, and then part of the journey being put on trucks um, in, in a forced exile. So a creation of um, state of Israel in this colonialist way is what led to my people um, being forced and transferred out of their indigenous lands. Mm. And to this day, um, there is a Jewish Israeli family that lives in our home that is still trying to get a deed to the house uh, signed off by my father. So, and they don't need that because the state has claimed it as uh, property um, to, that, that is owned by the state. I think it becomes a moral question for somebody living in your home when they're looking around the walls and the memory for them becomes an agony, uh, especially as they come from their own agony of um, anti-Semitism and, and, and what's the violence that's been perpetrated against their own community. So. I'm often asked the question, well, you don't claim, uh, why don't you speak about Jewish presence on the land? Um, and it's not that I don't speak about it. I, we do acknowledge it as Palestinians that there were Palestinian Jews as much as I'm a Palestinian Christian who's a minority. There were a minority of Palestinian Jews. So we're not, um, it's really important for me to differentiate between a Jewish Arab presence on the land, a Christian Arab presence on the land from a, um, uh, quote unquote, chosen people's theolo sinful theology that oppresses um, all indigenous peoples, including those Jewish people who are on the land. So the historical aspects for me are very clear. It's a nation state built on imperialism. Mm -hmm. 
the answer in regards to um, how to resist it. I've come to learn that I'm a privileged Palestinian in speaking about nonviolence and peace work because I'm able to reflect on it from a lens of somebody who's not oppressed on the ground. And I guess the two main lessons I learned about nonviolence and peace work is never to use nonviolence and peace language as a precondition for supporting people's rights and however, mm. however they are resisting on the ground. Mm. Because in doing so, um, we are expecting the oppressed to be perfect. And that perfection becomes part of the violence against them. Um, mm. And that violence against them perpetu uh, perpetuates itself in a cycle of the theology merging with state violence. So I look at my privilege when I start going into that judgmental space and I take upon my obligation. My obligation is to destroy institutional violence and Israel's occupation, which is the root causes for whatever violence efforts are on the ground. Um, so that is my learning and to never expect the oppressed to be perfect in their resistance and that nonviolence should never be used as a precondition. The same, of course, could be said of black communities here and indigenous communities and how they are labeled and their reactions to their oppressor. Um, and I tell any white person in this country, if you don't want the black or indigenous community to be violent, then you need to work on destroying institutional violence and not judge other people so you won't be judged. Woo. Yeah, right on. Woo. Woo. <laughs> you like that, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. That's I'm gonna have to transcribe that one, man, and put that in a memo somewhere to someone. Oh wow. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna jump in here on on the second question, and, and Dan, I heard it actually a little bit differently. Okay. Uh, you know, so I, I heard your question, you know, to inviting us also to, to think about what these what these technologies look like around period, right? Since um, uh, uh, counter resistance, right? You know, so I want to uh, I want to offer just a few things um, in in that regard, but but before before I do that, I, I do feel. Um, ethically um, obligated to uh, to to um, just flag uh, voice just re really really quickly in term in terms of this conversation. So so Brand and and, and Tarek and I and we're, we're 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 very close. We've been working with each other for uh, for for several years. I would go to bat publicly for either of these men on any day of the week uh, against anybody. Um, you know that. That being said, I do think it, it is something to note that um, uh, we we are we we the, the three of us collectively self-identify as either Christian or, or Jewish, um, and and there is no Muslim voice uh, in in this conversation. And when, when mm. we're talking geopolitical space, Palestine in particular, with this proportionate majority is Arab Muslim. That that's that's one. Um and and two, um we we are all uh also adult men. 
Um, and, and you know, the, the, the intersectional analysis, we, we, we locate ourselves differently kind of on, on this, uh, on this spectrum, uh, in, in, in some ways, uh, but I, I also want to, to note that when, when looking at an, uh, an illegal military occupation that in some significant ways uh, disproportionately implicates women and children, right? Um, to, to, to have, to have th this conversation um, amongst the, the four of us will, will necessarily be limited by virtue of voices present, right? Yes. Um, that's, that's not a shot. It's just, you know, I just want to flag um, you know, voice and kind of how that implicates our entry point. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, the things I want to lift up, uh, briefly in term, in terms of, of, you know, the, this question like technologies and what, what they look like on the ground. One thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm a language guy, right? So, so I'm always quick to invite folks to think about, especially, you know, though, those who are, um, kind of not, in Israel Palestine right those of us who are who are US based think about think about the language that uh, we, we hear kind of in in the political economy uh, domestically kind of and globally kind of around this question of Israel national security right um, terror terrorism safety right Th these are these are buzzwords that um in in very significant ways are are uh intentionally uh deployed to to conjure particular images mm -hmm. right and and the images conjured serve the purpose of of um among other things of um a type of colonial world making that that seeks to to bifurcate and divide right uh, in, in terms of uh, the the so-called good Judeo-Christian West, right, on the one hand, and, and on the other hand, you know, this, this caricature of this violent extremist um, Muslim other part of the world, okay? And that, and that gets, the, these tropes get played out in our, uh, and redeployed in our conversations about how to, like, govern the national politics. So one, one of the ways... One of the reasons I think that the, that we do see um, uh, just really um, affective resonance between um, uh, kind of folks in in the the U.S. as a nation state project, kind of in addition to along with um, uh, the the sovereign state of Israel, it, it is in insofar as it is. Um, uh, you know, these the spiritual conversations that are being implicated, political conversations being implicated. Insofar, we're talking about all of these things. We're also talking about a, a very intentionally crafted, emotional and affective register, right? That, that, is, that, is, that is intended to, to pull on folks' heartstrings so that, so that, so that the, the felt connection, uh, for better or worse, will, will be deeper. Um, and, and what, what I've found in intersectional work that I've done, um, that this is one of the, um, most devastating pitfalls, uh, into which, uh, a number of our folks, a number of my folks in particular, speaking of, of, um, black, uh, 
Christian communities uh, in, in the U.S. Fall, fall into because so oftentimes there's this resonance between uh, the, the people of God, right, um, and, and, and the land of Israel. That oftentimes allows folks to, to bypass a whole host of um, uh, political realities that, that are uh, snuffing out right, lives of entire families, entire families in occupied territories and, and Israel proper. Um, but, but, and kind of more, more specifically, kind of when, when I think about your question of technologies, uh, Dan, I, I, and I don't know if you use the language technology specifically, but that's, that's what my ear heard. I think it's also worthwhile to, to note that, that the United States um, uh, and, and Israel uh, share in, in really deliberate and intentional ways uh, technologies of, of surveillance of populations, right, um, uh, deemed most undesirable, for instance. Uh, the the uh, a, a good much of the surveillance technology that, that we know is operative um, uh, in the occupied uh, is it, 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 the same sort of technologies that that black folks saw in, in Baltimore and Ferguson a couple years ago. That's HP, right? That that's 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 drone technology used in both contexts uh, to surveil. Right? Mm. For instance, um, weapons manufacturers, right? Um, body armor, anti riot gear manufacturers, right? In in my home state of Pennsylvania, uh, being being deployed in both U.S.-based cities, right, most notably Ferguson, um, and, and also deployed in, uh, in Israel and, and in the occupied territory, same manufacturer, just exporting equipment, right? Um, uh, for instance, this is the last one I'll lift up. Uh, they're, they're well known by this point, joint police force training programs um, in a couple cities, U.S. cities that I'll just throw out, who we, we have receipts um, in terms of their, their participation uh, in joint U.S.-Israel uh, um, uh, military training programs. We know about the Atlanta Police Department, right? Uh, we know about the Chicago Police Department. Uh, we know about the Ferguson PD, right? St. Louis PD uh, and, and, and others. But, but the, these, are, these are the sorts of um, tactics that, that bring the, bring the conversation of of population control right uh, a, a little bit more to, to our uh, to, to our front door and that and that we see implicated you know on on a day-to-day -day, you know to, to different gradations right but day-to-day -day in multiple contexts not the least of which um, in in Israel and in the United States Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, boy, I really appreciate uh, this conversation, um, Tarek and, and Torian's words. And I, I want to underline also what Torian uh, said about the, the lack of a, a Muslim and, and a woman's voice at this particular conversation. I think that's a really important caveat to everything we say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll just... Uh, piggyback a little bit on, on both. Um, I, I was taken, uh, Daniel, by your, your first question about how to, how to 
solve this quote unquote conflict. And I think um, for me, the use of that word, you know, Torian spoke about the power of words uh, is really important. And I think yeah. for many, for most of my life, I saw this as a conflict, you know, yeah. and um, I, I don't use that analysis anymore. A, a conflict to me suggests uh, a level playing field uh, of two nations, two governments, two militaries in conflict with one another. Uh, whereas um, I really believe that this, if I, I adhere to an analysis that sees this as a settler, settler colonial enterprise that uh, is oppressing people who, the previous inhabitants of this land and uh, a, a crushing military occupation and a, and a state that was uh, pre uh, predicated on the backs of another people. And so I, rather than a conflict analysis, I look at this in an oppression analysis. And I would use other examples. I would use the example of apartheid South Africa. I would use the, the example of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South. You know, we wouldn't call those conflicts. Um, and we wouldn't say, well, that both sides have to sort of come to the table and find, find a way to compromise. You know, the, the solution is justice. The solution is... Uh, equality and equity for everybody uh, uh, and a dismantling of these oppressive systems that are keeping one group of people under the thumb of, uh, of another regime, of an oppressive regime. And um, I think that's why I think even in the, in the liberal world where we talk about a two-state solution and a peace process and coming to the table, uh, I, I really think if we're going to look at a... Uh, a, a truly just solution that will be sustainable. It needs to be rooted in the basic notion of equality and equal rights, equal civil rights, equal human rights, full citizenship for everybody who lives in that land, no matter what group they happen to belong to, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Palestinian, whether they're Christian, Muslim, whatever. Um, these are values that we cherish as Americans, uh, at least I hope we do, <laughs> of, uh, that all people uh, should enjoy these freedoms uh, equally, no matter what group they belong to. And that needs to be applied to Israel-Palestine as well. And, and that needs to include people who have been dispossessed from their homes, people who have been turned into refugees, people who have a right to return to those homes, or at least uh, uh, in, in lieu of return, if that's not possible, some form of repatriation. These are actual things. These are actual historical precedents. Uh, that this is not some pie in the sky notion. The notion of equal rights and repatriation is something very real. Uh, and it's rooted not only in um, my, my our political philosophy, but I see this as a person of faith as well. Um, you know, Tarek mentioned the, the theology of chosenness. And I think it's really important to point out that, you know, for centuries, Jews um, lived uh, in Europe, lived under the thumb of, uh, of oppressive Christian regimes. And we know what that's like. And, you know, colonialism was born in Christian Europe. And um, Zionism was born in that milieu, you know, and, and one of the things I'm grappling with as a Jew is that, um, that the, the ideology of, of Zionism uh, was in a way a betrayal of so much of what I as a Jew have come to cherish about my tradition, which is a tradition that um, understood that God is uh, the, the power above all human powers and that all human powers will one day fall. 
but that there's a concept every year on on the Jewish New Year we we reenthrone God, we reenthrone the the power that uh, is above all others, uh, and and we know from historic experience that whether it's the Roman Empire or the uh, the, the Catholic the Christian Inquisition in Spain or any number of regimes that have oppressed us throughout history, we know that they're going to fall one day. Uh, and and that their sense of uh, imperial power is really the uh, the seed of their downfall sooner or later, and mm. that Zionism really um, fell, I think, victim to this lifting up of human power over divine power. Um, whether we're talking about secular Zionists or religious Zionists, it's the same basic notion that we are deifying human power. And whenever yeah. that happens, and I, I would say as a Jew, we know this from historic experience because we've been under the thumb of, uh, for the majority of our history, um, uh, of, of imperial power and colonial power, um, that we of all people should know that, that the, the, the fatal flaw of this and, and the moral uh, problem, the deep moral problem of this this point of view, and in many ways, Zionism I think is a betrayal of that of that Jewish uh, sacred Jewish theology that I, I have cherished for my entire life. So, you know, I would I would argue both on a political level and on uh, on a, as a faith as a person of faith that understanding that the core value of my tradition, which I think I, I would go out on a limb and say all faith traditions worth their salt is that all human beings are made in the divine image, that we are all children of God and that there's no one group that is chosen over another. There's no one group that is entitled to a piece of land over another. Um, we uh, are all equal in the eyes of God. Uh, that's not a radical notion, or maybe it is when you live in radical times, that becomes a radical notion. Uh, hmm. But I, I would want to return to this whenever we're told, whenever we're told that, well, um, what about what about security? What about uh, you know? What about the the right for uh, for uh, to to live without fear of uh, of quote unquote terrorism? You know, and this goes to Tarek's point too about um, you know resistance. That nonviolence is always uh, is always violent regimes are always the first to preach nonviolence to the people they're oppressing. You know, and, um, you know, King, King, Martin Luther King even said that in, you know, in his speech, uh, one of the last speeches he gave, uh, time to break silence, um, when he talked about um, Vietnam for the first time. And, you know, when he would go to black African-American communities and they'd say, well, what, you know, you're preaching nonviolence to us, but what about Vietnam? You know, and he's and King said in that speech, I knew I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. Mm. You know, we don't we, we are socialized to think of state violence as not violence at all. We are socialized to think of of structural violence as something that's just um, just a given. We don't see it as violence. We only see the violence of resistance somehow as violence. But, you know, the bottom line is when people are oppressed, they will uh, resist that oppression one way or another. They tend to do that. <laughs> and sometimes that violence, that, that resistance will be violent. And um, I think that's inevitable. And, you know, we are, uh, you know, we can move into the realm of international law that says that, you know, that people under occupation have the right to resist 
their uh, resist violence violently. Um, you know, that's a whole other conversation we can have. Um, but we should understand that there is a fundamental difference between state violence, uh, uh, state structural violence against a specific people, and the violence of a people who are resisting that oppression. Yeah. Wow. Uh, let me ask this then. This is this is fascinating. I am, you know, getting a whole new education here. I, lo I love this. Um, but let me ask this. Like, what? So, what are then some of the concerns or dangers with a a White House here in the United States? You know, run by you know a government consumed by you know a nationalistic perspective on whiteness or what America once was and kind of, you know, draped in the idea that all Americans, you know, are are equal and whatnot. But, you know, we we all know that. I mean, just even here in Chicago, just having, you know, uh, immigration, quote unquote, you know, personnel here to help them enforce immigration laws to keep all Americans safe. I'm like, mm. so, I mean, you know, Trump has come out and, and, and done some things, particularly in this whole issue. What Where do you all see some of the dangers and issues within that? Or maybe maybe we're misreading it maybe 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 he's i don't know is, is he making things better i i, I don't know what 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 say y'all um yeah daniel um we had as fosna um were part of organizing a counter kufi action last year um that uh brand and Torian was are aware of um and, and participated um online and I, I believe in an outreach so why I mentioned this is Kufi is Christians United for Israel. Um, and they say that their membership is up to 8 million people. <clears throat> um, it is a white supremacist space um, that holds a conference in DC every year um, in the heart of our empire. And we countered it through a demonstration outside and through disrupting it internally. Um, and we were carried out uh, by security guards. Why I mention it to answer your question is because um, our government's um, philosophies were uh, well, uh, well alive and present. Our vice president was one of the speakers to 5,000 attendees in a white supremacist state that merges this country's colonialism with Israel's colonialism by also having Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu as also one of the speakers. So this for us was very important to counter as a, our, our motto is a Christian voice for Palestine. And we countered it as multi-faith people along with Muslim and Jewish organizations to showcase how it affects all our communities, not just Christians. So this space provides, um, religion is used as a moral cover for state violence and I kept speaking outside the space, that this is where they are building in the liberal um, spaces, even of Latino and black churches, where they want to get the moral cover um, the, for, for that state violence. So for me, it's very disturbing. Um, and it is using, as we have seen, our legal system in the Supreme Court. And any kind of separation of powers has been put in question and it is the destruction of these institutions and any separation of state and religion. So all these values that a lot of us hold dear um, in being able to parse through um, white supremacy and, and oppressions um, has really been questioned. So it is very destructive on all levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
uh, very destructive on on all levels indeed. Um, one one thing that I've come to recognize is that this Trump administration is, I think, in in important ways, making explicit, however, what uh, uh, U.S. presidents have, have have been implicit about for uh, for generations, right? Um, so we we see explicit moves like uh, the the relocating of of the U.S. embassy. Right, uh, with, with an opening of which that happened to be on on the same uh, day that commemorated the the seventieth anniversary, um, you know, of of uh, the the Palestinian Great Catastrophe, right, which is a slap in the face uh, to um, uh, to to the resistance. Um, but one one thing that I've come to also note that I think is important to not let slip under the radar. You know, so we we have we see these big, kind of boisterative, performative, demonstrative moments that um, uh, Donald participates in, um, you know, and and his deputies, right? Um, but but then then there are other moments that 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 are not in the national consciousness, and and quite. In quite the same way, right? So, but 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 are no less, um, if not more so, destructive, right? So here I'm thinking about things like uh, the the massive assault that uh, the the Trump Department of Education uh, is launching and has been launching for for quite some time now against um, uh, Palestinian activism on college campuses. Right, you know, so 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 we have, uh, you know, th- things like redefinition of of um, reshaping of the definition of anti-Semitism. You know, you you see the moment that happened at uh, at at uh, uh, Duke, the the consortium between Duke and and UNC Chapel Hill a, a few months ago uh, when a conference was hosted uh, on on Gaza, I, I believe um, that that got slammed. It, immediately, you know, from, from the Department of Education with all the to withhold federal funding. The, the, these are these are moments that we, we don't always see, uh, but but that are really implicating um, really implicating us in, in profound ways, especially those of us who are uh, who are on campuses of, of, of higher education, right? You know, so I, I direct the Black Church Study Center um, and I'm on a teaching faculty and, and the, the ways in which persons uh, at every level of institutional life are, are vulnerable, right? You know, from, from undergraduate to the graduate level, uh, junior faculty, senior faculty, administrators. I mean, we, we've seen examples over the past, you know, recent past, five years, six years, whereas folks at at every single level that, that I just mentioned um, have been um, have been targeted, uh, have, have been targeted, have been uh, silenced, have been fired, right? Um, so so when 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 I put um, this question of well, what what really is this administration doing, uh, kind of on on this issue? I, I do think about these more public moments 
um, that everybody sees on CNN, right? MSNBC and Fox, right? And then I think about the, these other moments that um, very much seem to be a, a no less intentional um, strategy to um, to, uh, to do several things, among them uh, silence, any sort of um, holding critical of uh, the, the state of Israel and, and its uh, policies, official and de facto, of uh, population control and extermination. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> Torian's always a hard one to follow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I would add to what Tarek and Torian just said that, um, you know, I and, and underline what has just been said, that I think with the Trump administration, we are seeing in a very overt and blatant and unabashed way the... the uh, the embrace of white supremacy that I think has always been subterranean in our national consciousness, uh, but now is just being unleashed in a very open way. And uh, it's ugly and it's deadly and it's horrid, uh, but it's also clarifying. You know, I think it it's, it's helped, I think, a lot of people who weren't able to see it truly and, and analyze it properly um it, it's it's giving us a little bit more uh, a clarified vision of what's what's truly going on and you know the trump administration's em embrace of the far right and their emboldening of uh not just the far right but the white nationalist and even neo-nazi uh elements uh here and 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 abroad because this is a this is a trend that we're seeing around the world uh, and I would I would include Israel in that trend, by the way, um, this ultra nationalist, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnic supremacist uh, notion is very much in keeping with this ethos, ironically enough. Um, you know, Israel, Israel is part of, of this, uh, a part of this embrace. It's a mutual embrace. Netanyahu and Trump. Uh, are really two sides of the same coin, ironically enough, even though Trump is has emboldened white nationalists and white supremacists, uh, um, Israel is part of that network and has, has made its bed um, in yeah. this world. And, you know, I, I think that they are desperately holding on to this narrative that um, that the real threat of anti-Semitism is Palestinians and Muslims and yeah. uh, anti-Zionists, uh, the people who are struggling against colonial oppression, these are the, the are the true anti-Semites of the world. But it's I think it's becoming harder and harder to really to really make that point. You know, I mean, we're living in a time now where um, Jews are being gunned down in their houses of worship by neo-Nazis yeah. uh, in this country, yeah. um, who are people who are writing manifestos that are uh, either directly or indirectly inspired by the president of the United States. Um, and, and so, you know, I think what, when we, when we see what uh, Torian was talking about, this definition of anti-Semitism that's being, uh, trying to be, is, is almost weaponized in a legal way, um, that criticism of Israel or criticism of Zionism is, is now uh, akin to anti-Semitism. Uh, that is the backlash, you know. That is the 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 uh, the strong counterweight that the the 
the state of Israel and and this our government here, those who not just the state of Israel, but Christian Zionists and and Israel advocates and um, the Trump administration are working very very hard to promote this narrative that the true threat to the Jewish people are um, are Palestinians and and Muslims, and and we're seeing now the most absurd example of that when we I, we hear. Uh, Donald Trump lecturing the Jewish community on who is a good Jew and who is a bad Jew. Uh, and Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. is lecturing to my community that yeah. we don't love Israel enough. And why are Jews supporting Democrats? They don't love Israel enough. We heard Giuliani say, I'm a better Jew than G George Soros. He actually said this. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that is yeah. this is the absurd you know, uh, world that we've now entered, that we have anti-Semites weaponizing anti-Semitism against the, you know, uh, to preach that they are somehow uh, better Jews than Jews themselves. Um, mm -hmm. and, and mark my words, um, we're going to be seeing this in the presidential election this year against Bernie Sanders. Yeah. We're already seeing it. Um, yes. We're already seeing, uh, you know, we heard last night on this, this wackadoo yep. debate in South Carolina, uh, the questioner, I don't remember who the questioner was, but asked, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, what will you say to the Jewish community about um, your, uh, you know, your uh, that that are worried about your lack of support for the state of Israel? She asked him that because he was a Jew. She didn't ask that question to anybody else uh, on, on that stage. She didn't even ask it to, to Michael Bloomberg, by the way. But mm. you know, his Jewish bona fides. He's being forced to constantly defend himself and to bring up the fact that, no, I am a proud Jew. No, I have relatives who died during the Holocaust. He's being put in that position. And APAC and uh, Democratic uh, advocates of Israel as well are pouring a great deal of time, effort, and money into uh, weaponizing this against him uh, and using his Jewish identity as a wedge. Uh, and we're going to see some real ugliness during the course of 2020 in this uh, in this election, I'm afraid. Um, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're seeing it already, but it's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, man, this is, again, this, this is powerful stuff because I think, you know, again, when you think about the political cycle that we're in, also... It's somebody who, like myself, that teaches, you know, media and communication. I've been trying to really educate you know, the student population that comes into me and, um, you know, this, well, last year was the first year. Well, actually the year before that, excuse me, fall of 2018, uh, was the first, uh, wave of students, right. That were born in the year 2000, grew up in a world of post nine 11, didn't know anything but the internet, you know, came of age during YouTube and Twitter and, and whatnot. And, what we're starting to see, um, and this is, again, as, as an educator, I get concerned, and this just even happened yesterday in class. I had a student just passionately say, uh, you know, I just believe that, you know, the world is being indoctrinated by uh, homosexuality and that, you know, that, you know, other cultures don't have to to deal with this stuff. And, and, and you know, it's just because of the way we've been indoctrinated here by our media and the liberal agenda and everything. And I let him go on for about, you know, three or four minutes. And I was just like, all right. I said, let me just put a pin in that. And I was like. What do you base this on? I said, we're in a classroom. I'm not I'm not trying to like tear you down, but I'd like to know where do you get your information? And his information was, this is just what I think. This mm. is just this is just where this is, you know, I, I read an article once. 
I said, do you yeah. remember the author of that article? No. Okay. Yeah. What empirical evidence can you show me about this? Where, when you talk about global domination, right, of what you just said, homosexual values, what do, where do you find that? Well, I don't know. I just, I, I just, I, it was just, I just, I've just been something I've been thinking about. And I'm telling you, that may sound like, you know, particularly for the listeners, for you gentlemen, I don't know where y'all, but that may sound like, wow, okay, I'm glad he's in the classroom, right? But that's becoming more and more the norm and folks that haven't embraced a worldview. So going back to even our conversation here, you know, we live in a world, right? Like you said, where the anti-Semites can say, I'm a better Jew, I'm a better this. And just like, you know, Donald Trump said it in his 2016 election. I'm I've, I'm the best president, you know, that a black, that a black America can have, you know? <laughs> I'm I'm the best. I've done more for black people than any other president in the history of the United States. What do you have to lose? He said. Right. What do you have to lose? <laughs> so crazy. Exactly. So, anyways, I mean, I just appreciate the richness of this conversation. Um, any just final thoughts, man? I just you know some free. Th- I know I've been asking some questions and y'all been going in. Any any other just remaining thoughts here and and that y'all have? Any of y'all have in regards to just the subject matter? And I know we're probably just scratching the surface, but um, this is some good material. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. And I think that is maybe something Tarian was pointing to is this is fomenting all the white supremacy and the white privileges to the surface that we haven't talked about for decades because we're using language that suppresses it, such as peace and nonviolence at times. So for me here, when you have a show of profane faith, for me, Mm -hmm. the suggested oxymoron of that statement, of that those two words, actually becomes the prophetic it becomes the prophetic um, in a movement that uses these, these, this language of whether it's manifest destiny, as we started talking, um, to suppress another people through the good racist intentions of being a light unto the nations and the ugly impact of being a darkness onto every street corner in my city in Bethlehem. So... This paradigm, for me, the antithesis profane becomes the light of God, mm-hmm. which is much better than any one of these paradigms. Uh, and that light of God, for me, expresses itself in standing outside the walls of a temple, of an empire, of a church that is feeding poison to the people inside. We got to leave our churches and march in the streets, the real churches and the real theologies, to drink that springs of water in the hands of those people marching in a collective liberation model and in the model of justice that are intersecting in the same body of a black lesbian woman, for example. I used to, my last word is, I used to be put on the defensive when people would use this, and and, and, um, Rabbi Brent used it, racist, semi-euphemistic language as demographic threat which is a cover-up for further ethnic cleansing. I don't go on the defensive anymore because I know myself and my justice principles and where I stand. What I do at this point is catapult your crap back onto you and tell you that you cannot simultaneously be racist and tell me as a liberal that you're working for justice. So if you view my Arab body as a demographic threat to you, you need to do a lot of work or you can get out of the shared land. But when you're ready to come back in, you are welcome 
That is the nonviolence justice principle I will hold, is holding people accountable to their thoughts and the words they say, such as the student in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You know, my, my, um, one of the profoundly, one of the most profoundly moving moments of, of my life uh, was when uh, my, my first time in the region, my first time in, in the OP, in the occupied territories, OPT, um, in a village, in Deir Nadam, and and um, uh, I won't go through the through the whole thing, but you know the the story was, um, you know, not f- f- phenomenally non-unique, right? Uh, of 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 families who live under occupation, right? You know, the uh, the 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 Israeli military storms into into the house. Uh, mother and father, two boys, 13-year-old, 9-year-old, um, looking for the eldest boy, blindfold him, drag him all around the house, um, whisk him away, hold him up in a detention facility for, for a few days. His parents know absolutely nothing about his whereabouts um, and, and until they, they find out, you know, that there was some, uh, uh, some random unidentified teenage boy a few days prior who had thrown a stone at a military tank, right? Um, in this particular village, uh, the, the, the month before I was there for, for the first time, uh, had 16 night raids in, in, in one month, right? 16. What, what that means is every other night your home is being broken into, right? That's, that's what that means. Um, when, when we asked the son, the, the eldest boy, how, how, how is your life different, right, now? He said to us was, um, you know, anytime now that uh, I even hear whispers that the military is in is anywhere close to my neighborhood, I run home, I lock the front door behind me, I run into my bedroom and I lock it and I stay there, right? So it, it's it's at that moment, it is at that moment, Dan, where where terrorism accomplishes precisely what it sets out to do. Mm. Right. Folk, folk better, and, and I know this is a really kind of hotly contested issue. Uh, a number of us, all of us on, you know, the, the three guests on this call, we've all taken public and private heat on this issue. Folk better get real clear uh, re- real soon, pa- particularly justice, uh, so-called justice-minded folks, people of faith, better get real clear um, about, about the, the fact that um, if we say we're taking seriously uh, the, the fact that, that people everywhere should be able to live with, with basic basic entitlements that that uh, rights that honor their human dignity, right? Uh, lo- looking at th- this particular military occupation ought, ought to be um, uh, ought to be a a a, a travesty, right? Um, of of that of that ethic. I mean, you, you're talking about, you know, I, I I don't I don't know how how one justifies um, uh, uh, raids on on a city that, that hit all the safe zones, right? So the, this is the this is the the, the hit on on guys in summer 2014. It hit all the safe zones, right? Schools, hospitals, uh, churches, right? Trauma centers. 
I don't, I don't know how one justifies that in, in the name of national security, right? I don't, I don't know how one justifies um, uh, a, a, as a military force identifying someone who allegedly committed a crime who, who has a, a neighbor, right, in, in the, in the uh, adjoining house unrelated to the crime, but, but just because the house is in proximity to, to the alleged perpetrator, you run in and you make that house uninhabitable. Kick all the folks out. You pour concrete, pour, pour cement, right, in, in the living room floor. Folk can't go back. I don't know how you justify that, right, in, in the name of safety and security. I, I, don't, I don't know, right? So my, 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 my departing thought is we, we need to get real, real clear um, real soon about um, – what are the logical conclusions to which we are willing to take our so-called faith-based justice ethics? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Torian. Yeah. Just I'll, I'll just conclude with a few things. You know, to to riff on what what Torian was just saying. I mean, you know, I. A, a real turning point for me, as I said before, was not 2014, but 2008, a military yeah. onslaught on Gaza. And where I just, I was just watching and reading what was going on and thinking, how on earth do I rationalize this away? How do I, you know, how do I equivocate on this? This is just, this is just barbarism and oppression pure and simple and my faith tradition demands that I speak out against it and it's actually very simple you know I think liberals love to say well it's, these things are very complicated and actually oppression is not that complicated but we live in such a time now that that this kind of extreme behavior is normalized and it, it and we I think even well-meaning liberal folk internalize this as normal uh, so that when we speak out against it, it is, it is seen as radical. It is, you know, what Tark was saying about prophetic faith. It, it, it is radical. You know, it is a profane faith um, to, to, when you live in radical times to speak out against it, that's a radical act. And I think we are in that, we are in that such a time on steroids in which just uh, radical uh, militarism and oppression has become so normalized uh, and I, and also I would I would include in there um, you, you know domestic issues such as you know the lack of healthcare and homelessness and <laughs> you know any number of, of of domestic barbarism examples that we can come up with as well. It's just you know it's like well yeah this is just the way things are and it's a pipe dream to think that things could ever be any 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 different. Well, actually, you know simple equality and decency, <laughs> if we live in a time in which we're advocating for that is seen as a radical act, then we're, ra we're radicals here, you know, and I think we need to, to stand up and, and own that unabashedly, I think. The other thing I just want to end with, and, you know, in terms of where we go from here, um, it, this reminded me, your, your question, uh, Daniel, of um, something that happened a few weeks ago, and Tarek will remember this. Uh, Tarek and I, participated um, with many others in Pittsburgh in a racial justice uh, summit. And mm -hmm. uh, he and I spoke on two different panels. And, and one of those panels was after a movie 
uh, a very powerful documentary called Roadmap to Apartheid, which I highly recommend, mm-hmm. by the way. It's okay. a 2000, 2011 film that really uh, dissects uh, South African apartheid uh, and how, uh, how the similarities with Israeli apartheid. But at any rate, after the film, Tarek and I and, and um, two others were on a, pa- a post-showing panel where we were doing audience talkback. And the, the very first uh, uh, question came from a, an older white man who was a, a pastor who stood up and asked, specifically wanted to speak to me. And he said, this was a great movie. Um, you know, how can we get this movie out there uh, how can we get a bigger distribution? Because, you know, we can't do it through the mainstream media because we all know that Jews control the media. Oh. And I I just, I don't know how I managed to do it, but I said, okay, I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, I said, you're doing the cause of a racial justice seminar no favors by, uh, yeah. by spewing anti-Semitism. And I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to ask you to think about what you said. I just really, I intervened in a very, very strong way. And then... And yeah. then there was that horrible moment of like silence because, you know, things had run off the rails and it wasn't according to the script. And and I felt really, I, I was just like, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? And then to my huge relief, uh, the moderator of the panel, um, who was not Jewish, uh, backed me up and said, he's absolutely right, you know, that, that we need to stand together against this kind of thing. And then Tarek backed me up in a very forceful way. And... I can't tell you how much that meant to me in that moment, you know, and, and both personally, but also I felt like, okay, we're, 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 we are demonstrating what solidarity is actually. We're not just talking about it. We're actually, we're demonstrating it. And that in this moment, you know, that, that comment, even from a, a leftist, you know, white supremacists can, ideas can come from any number of directions. Um, but that kind of anti-Semitism is rooted in racist white supremacy. And, you know, the fact that we can together take a stand against that and show what solidarity looks solidarity look like in real time uh, is enormously important. And I was hugely grateful to Tarek and the others on that, on that panel. And um, I think that's really the key out of this is, is as ever is solidarity and that we need to stand together and not see these as siloed issues or issues that just affect our own individual communities. But actually, you know, this threat is to all of us collectively. And the only answer is to stand together against this, this threat. And, um, you know, I think that time, if ever there was a time uh, in which solidarity is mandated, I, I would say it's right now. And that's um, that's what I would want to leave us with is is the, mm. the to underline the importance, uh, the sacred importance of solidarity. And um, yeah, and that's why I, I really value and, and cherish these kinds of conversations where we can um, we can bring together people who people might not want necessarily think would speak together you know, uh, on this issue to somehow find common cause on that and to demonstrate that, that we can do that real large, that, that this is possible. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Amen. 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 That's exactly what I was thinking. Wow. This has been, uh, this has been great. This has been great. I love it. And I thank each of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules for, uh, for having this conversation. I really do. I mean, I, yeah, thank you so much. 
Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate oh, it. Absolutely, absolutely. And then just lastly, real quick, where can folks find you? Um, you know, I'll post these in the in the in the show notes uh as as well and uh and whatnot. But uh yeah, where where might folks be able to, to locate you? Maybe you know, something public, you know, that they won't uh, that you can kind of filter in case there's any foos, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> Yes, for the for the people of justice and for the trolls, they can <laughs> at, at fosna.org. It's F O S as in Sam N A dot org. Fosna.org. And thank you very much, Daniel and all. Yeah, so I can um uh I can be be found my my institutional email email address. Um, go go to the to the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary um, directory. Can uh, find me there. Uh, send me an email. Send my center an email. Uh, we'll, we will we will be glad to to hear from you. We we do filter that stuff, you know. So uh, uh, don't come, you know, crazy. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm always always glad and, and honored to to be a conversation partner and just. To, to put in a, a quick uh, a quick plug, uh, the, the center I direct, the Center for the Church and the Black Experience, uh, there there at Garrett, um, campus of Northwestern University, is this year celebrating its 50th year anniversary. Um, and and as as a dear dear sister of mine, Reverend Dr. Nichelle Guidry said to me a couple months ago, anytime Black folk can celebrate any 50 years anything in an institution is something to celebrate it. Uh, so, so we welcome folks to kind of come and, and ask questions there. Um, and I also have some writings uh, floating around uh, the, the fall, issue, fall issue of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Um, uh, wrote a piece on on um, uh, kind of reflecting as a Christian theologian on, on this this topic of Black Palestinian transnational solidarity. Um, thank you for for having me here. Mm. Uh, yeah, and. Uh... You can um, find my writings on my blog, uh, which is called Shalom Rav, uh, and it can be found at rabbibrant.com. Uh, and I have another blog that um, specifically is more my, my poetry and my liturgy and, and uh, religious writings. Uh, that's ynefesh.com, Y-N-E-F-E-S-H.com. And um, my congregation's website is tzedekchicago.org. T-Z-E-D-E-K, Chicago.org. And there's all kinds of stuff in there about who we are, what we're about, and the kinds of stuff we do. And um, yeah, just appreciate you know, having us on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again. And for those listening, I will put all this in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. Thank you again, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks.